continue to dive in. Uh, as I mentioned, there is a big, uh, we see the hinge happening within Luke's gospel tonight. Um, so kind of an important night to be here to, to see what the big shift. So we are in 9 and 10. I got to mentally prepare myself to read all these words, right? Uh, And he called Jesus, and he called the twelve, the apostles, together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet, as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him or her deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose or forfeit themselves? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of them will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying... The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. 
when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make, 13, make three tents, one of, for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand his, this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. All right, let's stop right there. So we have the end of what is considered the Galilean ministry um, with that phrase in 51, that he is setting his face to go to Jerusalem. So what we have here is, though, a continuation of this question around who is this Jesus? And Luke gives us this idea, again, of Herod even asking, who is this Jesus? So like the last person you would expect to be asking the question about who Jesus is, is Herod. And Herod is confused about who Jesus is. And so we see this theme about asking, who is Jesus and what is he about? But before that, we, we have these two interesting stories around the sending out of two groups. I know we haven't gotten to the other one, but it's coming. So he sends out the disciples, and it's this precursor to what's going to happen as we move into Acts, right? The sending out of the church into all the land and, and the power of the Spirit. And they receive this authority to cast out demons, cure diseases, and to do what? to proclaim the kingdom of God, and to heal. Notice we see the coupling together or the grouping together. It's not a coupling because there's more than two. When the kingdom of God is preached, what is happening? Two main things are happening. Healing 
and demons are being cast out. So the proclamation of the gospel or the proclamation of the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God advances, these two things are going to happen. So they go out, and how are they supplied? Well, they're supplied with nothing. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra clothing, right? And it's interesting because part of the conversation in this is complete and total reliance on God. Because when we jump ahead to what does it mean to take up your cross, it is this, complete and total self-reliance on who God is and how he will provide for his people. Also, we see them going out with nothing, right? And how does it go for them? Very well. Again, I'm going to give you a clue. When a question is asked, you just look at the text. There's the end. It's like an open book test, right? Uh, it went very well for them. They were healing everywhere. I mean, like, if somebody, you're like, hey, we're going to go on this mission trip. Um, we're not going to bring anything. And you go out and you come back and people are like, how'd it go? Well, you know, it was all right. We healed a bunch of people. Wouldn't you all be like, excuse me, what'd you say? Yeah, we healed a bunch of people. Oh, yeah, it's just that. No big deal. We had nothing. God provided for us. Man, we healed some people. You know, it was, it was okay. It went extremely well. So they have this experience, and it goes extremely well for them. And then they go on to this next movement, and they're on the mountain, okay? And, what, and, and Jesus says, um, we need to provide them something to eat. Well, first they say, hey, Jesus, we got to get rid of these people. And he says what? Give them something to eat. Now, again, as we go throughout Luke's gospel, if someone ever asks you, who do you identify with most, and you answer a disciple, oftentimes the disciples are not really the best characters to identify with because they so often miss it. Because they've just had this experience, and God has provided completely for them, and then they go on to the next experience, and what do they do? It doesn't say it explicitly. You're like, you just said it's going to say it in the text. Okay, it doesn't say it explicitly. They doubt. Yes, thank you. They doubt. God has been providing for them throughout this whole time. Remember, it says when they left, what did they leave? Everything. They left everything, and God has been providing for them. And now here we have the feeding of the 5,000, which is the only uh, miracle that happens in all four of the Gospels. And they are concerned about how God is going to provide for them, which is a fascinating juxtaposition or comparison and contrasting of how the disciples, they get it for a second, and then they don't get it. And then what happens right after the feeding of the 5,000? They get it. I mean, this is like the signature moment for Peter. Jesus is like, who do people say that I am? And it's almost a verbatim recollection of what the crowd told Herod. And he says, you are the Christ of God. And it's like this light bulb aha moment where Peter acknowledges that who Jesus is 
So we see this back and forth, this in and out of like belief and getting it and not belief and not getting it and belief. And it's this back and forth. And the question that I always have to wonder is, when we see this happening with those who are literally right next to Jesus, what does that do for us? Like when I see what's happening and then I think about my own life, how often is it that that I'm like, the, this is me. This is me. Have moments of faith and great belief and then have moments of questioning and, and not believing that God can do what he says he's going to do and then believe. And that is the human condition of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. We can understand and acknowledge who Jesus is. Yes, you are God. You are the Messiah. You are all these things. And then life comes at us and we get hungry and we're like, nah, I don't know if I still believe this. And for some of us, it, we, we can experience this shame around, well, I'm not that good of a Christian because I have these thoughts and feelings. And then we open the text and we say, these are the exact same people who God has right next to him. And when Peter says, you are the Christ of God, again, we've talked about this. Remember when, when John's disciples came and they were, they were confused about who Jesus is? To be the Messiah means something completely different. And Luke puts these two together in, in a, this location to show to us that Jesus is trying to communicate to them that this Messiah is someone different. This Messiah must suffer many things, be rejected, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised again. And he says, and if you want to follow after me, this is what it looks like to be a disciple of mine. And I know we've been talking about this idea of what is discipleship. And I, I wish I could remember who said it. And the, the comment was, the church is often great at making converts, but not great at making disciples. The church does a great job of converting people, but often not a great job of doing discipleship. Because when we talk about discipleship, this is really hard stuff. This is hard work. To be a true follower of Jesus Christ means to go against everything that exists in our body. <laughs> Because we see this contrast, and Paul talks about it when he writes his letters. Paul's comparison is between the flesh and between the spirit. Remember, throughout Galatians, he talks about the flesh and he talks about the spirit. This is how the flesh lives. This is how the spirit lives. Flesh and spirit. Flesh meaning world. Spirit meaning things of God. And Jesus says, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Whoever would save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their self? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of them will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. 
And so we have this challenge to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to deny what I want and to live into what God wants. Period. And, and I know this gets twisted, and it has been twisted in various forms, because it gets twisted around, well, then you just have to, you know, do all of, like, basically nothing that's, I mean, this is the ascetic life. The nothing is good, that's good in this world is a part of your life. Like, we should all be sitting on hard wooden pews. We should be wearing rough clothing. There's no such thing as pleasure in this life. Just deny, 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 deny. That's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. When we think about Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, which is, Jesus gives us next week, but in, in Luke's gospel, he doesn't give us the phrase, not my will, but your will be done. That is the encapsulation of this to take up my cross. Because as I talked about on Sunday, to live the cruciform life is to crucify myself so that Christ then can live through me. As Paul says in in Romans 6, as I talked about on Sunday, it is the death to my sinful self so that the Spirit of God may live through me. And so when we think about how do we live our lives, it's not take up my cross one time and then I just go on about my business. He says, you will take up your cross daily and follow me. Because taking up our crosses is a daily moment-by-moment experience. We find ourselves in, in all sorts of situations, conversations, moments where, where we want to respond how we want to respond. <laughs> and we have to crucify our desire and live through Christ. Somebody says something to us, and we just want to respond because we have the ability to, to really respond in a very powerful way and put that person in their place. And then we hear the voice of the Spirit. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Again, this is not about I'm in an abusive relationship and I just have to allow myself to continually be abused because I deny myself. It's not that I think, you know, this idea of humility being not that I think less of myself, it's I think of myself less. It's this idea that the world is calling to me on a constant basis. The siren song of the world is fulfill your desires, fulfill your pleasures, pleasure yourself, make everything easy. Just, just be happy and be, bathe yourself in pleasure and joy and all of these things that the world has to offer. And the way of Jesus is to deny ourselves and say, God, what is it that you want from me? In so many different ways. From what we eat to what we watch to how we live our lives. Oftentimes it's from the time, what time do we get up in the morning? Or what time do we go to bed at night? It's like, you know, if it was my desire, my body would really like to not have to set an alarm clock. And it's like, well, then how am I going to get this done or do this or do that? If it's my money, there's the things that I want to buy. I want these things. And Jesus says, 
deny oneself. It's not about the things of this world. Deny oneself and follow me. And notice it doesn't say, take up the cross. It says, take up his or her cross. Because each one of us has a different cross to bear. And as we think about this, we can get into this uh, comparison game. And remember back when we were talking about the speck and the plank in each other's eye. And we can look and we can say, well, J- Jerry, I don't, think that, I don't think there's any Jerry's in here. There's definitely not a Jerry over there for those watching at home. Jerry over there, I mean, pff, like, have you seen his cross? Like, I could seriously, I could carry about seven of Jerry's crosses. Like, pff, <laughs> like, really, Jerry? Come on. Or like, have you seen uh, Susie's cross? Like, She's really, like, her cross is kind of pathetic. Like, is she really a Christian? Like, if that's the cross she's bearing, I mean, seriously. Like, have you seen my cross? It's, like, the biggest, the heaviest, the hardest of anybody. Have you seen it? It's like, whoa. Like, because basically I'm the best Christian because I have the biggest cross. Or we get into this, have you seen Jerry's cross? Like, what Jerry is experiencing As a disciple of Jesus Christ, like, I have nothing. I have nothing to say. Because, like, what I'm doing is, like, peanuts compared to what Jerry has to to deal with. And what happens right after this, right? In 46, they get into the comparison game. Who's the greatest? And Jesus is like, oh my goodness, you don't get it. Because carrying our crosses isn't a comparison game for bragging rights or to make ourselves feel better. Carrying our crosses is about putting Jesus Christ first and foremost in our lives. Because at the end of the day, what this conversation is about is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, is to get rid of idolatry in our lives, and an idol is anything that appears before God. Between us and God is an idol. And if I deny myself that thing, then I can fully serve God. That's why what happens when he calls the first disciples? They leave everything. They remove anything that is going to be an impediment between them and Jesus. And then, again, we talked last week about this idea of the the good seed and and the weeds growing up. And one of the questions that came up or that comes up tonight is, who are the people around me and how are they helping or hindering me carrying my cross? Because we know that there's people in in our world that when we're really trying to, like, do something hard and significant and, like, disciplined... Like, ah, like, like you've been really, like, I mean, how about a cheat day? <laughs> like, you've been so disciplined, like, you don't need to worry about that, like, totally, like, that's, like, really extreme, and you've been doing so good, so don't even bother, like, just take a cheat day. And Jesus is like, no, there's no cheat days as a disciple. And then he gives this interesting phrase about, those seeing 
the kingdom before they see death. And then what happens in Luke's gospel right after that? The transfiguration. And these three individuals get to see God's glory in, in this mountaintop experience echoing back to what? To the Old Testament and Moses on the mountaintop with God and all this huge thing. We see this, this cross connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Jews are like, ah, oh, this sounds so familiar. And God comes down and this, this prophetic Word is partially fulfilled right away, eight days later. And the voice of God says to those present, this is my son, my chosen one, what? Listen to him. And I know we've talked about this before. Sky Jatani has these interesting books like, what if Jesus was serious, dot, dot, dot. And and it's like, okay, what if Jesus was serious about discipleship? What if Jesus was serious about cross-bearing? And if we don't want to listen to Jesus, then we don't want to listen to God. And God's like, hey, listen to my kid here. And so when he says, I'm going to be delivered into the hands and killed, The disciples don't want to listen to that because what they want from Jesus is something different. Do we listen to the words of Jesus? Then we get this interesting little uh, story about this man who comes and he brings his son. And what did we talk about last week? As it relates to children being brought to Jesus, what is the connection what does Luke say? Again, it's, it's an open book question. What is it about this child that's significant? He's his only child. Yes. Like this man comes and he's like, Jesus, this is my only child. God just said to the disciples, this is my only son. Next story, only son. I don't think Luke is just doing that by accident. We have the disciples unable to heal or to cleanse him of this demon. And Jesus, we see this kind of snarky reference when in reality it's an allusion back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. And so Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, drawing in Hebrew scripture about what's happening here. And it's notice what, what is happening right after this again is the idea of who's the greatest. And so we have this question, who is Jesus? And then we have these instances of comparison about who is Jesus. Is Jesus John? Is he Elijah? Is he a prophet? Is he all these things? And then we have an instance where who is more powerful? Is it Jesus or is it his disciples? Because if Jesus is doing the exact same thing that his disciples are doing, there becomes a point where you're like, well, why don't we just follow these guys? Because they're doing the exact same things that Jesus is. And Luke tells us, no, not so fast, my friends. It's Jesus is still the supremacy of God in bodily form, and he is the one who has the power to do these things. And they're astonished, and he says, oh, and by the way, to remind you, I just said this, I'm going to say it again, I'm going to be killed. And it almost goes completely away. (laughs) They're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Which one of us is the most important? 
that's not much cross-bearing. That was really grammatically poor. Nick, that was terrible, right? Like, you like I would have sent you that email. You'd be like, wrong, try again. Yeah, okay, good. Uh, yes? Um, I think it's, uh, well, the disciples are certainly there. The crowd is there. So you could definitely say he's directing at the disciples. But again, if we go back and look at Deuteronomy, he is quoting the Old Testament to the disciples and the crowd to say, my people have a challenge to understand who I am. So it definitely comes across in this derogatory, like when we first, at first blush, we read it and we're like, wow, that's, that's harsh. It's because we haven't memorized Deuteronomy, which is next week's discipline. Just making sure everyone's still awake. <laughs> You're like, some of you are like, I've already done that. Yes. Yes. Yes, twisted is not necessarily a good thing in English. Yeah, because what is the opposite of twisted? Straight. And remember, right away, what is Jesus and John going to do? Make straight paths. Thank you, yes. And so we see this twisting, right, thank you for bringing that up. Twisting is not this negative connotation as like a wicked thing. It's a not straight thing, a not understanding thing. It's like you aren't fully wrapping your mind around what's happening. And again, they, they miss this whole thing about listening about what it looks like to bear your cross. And Jesus says, you don't understand. And he, he brings this child in and he says, the person who you think is the, the least of these is the most important in my kingdom. And I know I went on a rant last year about children's ministry and I could go on a rant if we had more time. Trust me, I could. I don't really need to because I think we all know that children are very important and we need to love them and care for them. And Jesus says, you think you're important. These people are the most important. And then he gives another example of this group of people that are casting out demons, which is so ironic, right? Even his own disciples can't cast out this demon. Luke gives us this irony that there's other people who are casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And John and the disciples are like, who do these people think they are? They're not that important because they're not with us. And Jesus says, no, there's no classism within the kingdom of God. They are a part of us because they are with us. And he sets his face towards uh, Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans, uh, which on your map is on the upper left-hand side. It's like right about uh, like this knuckle right here. If you're like thinking about Israel, it's like this, right? It's like right there is your knuckle, depending on how big your hand is. Um, and to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. 
And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So Jesus, immediately setting his face towards Jerusalem, is making his way through Samaria, which in and of itself is this dramatic thing. And the people notice that he's on his way and that he is not going to be stopped. And so they, in essence, let him go. And, and notice, fresh off the transfiguration, the disciples, James and John, are like, oh, we watch this trick. We have got power. You know, we have this Old Testament desire to, like, call fire down on the city uh, and destroy these people. And Jesus is like, uh, no, wrong answer. And these people come up to him along the road, and they're asking, basically, what does it mean to follow you? And he says, what it means to follow me is to reject everything in this world first and foremost. And he goes through this litany of things, whether it be having a house, whether it be uh, burying a, a father who's dead. I mean, he's breaking all of these social norms by what he is saying. And he's making the point to be a disciple is total and complete allegiance to God, rebuking everything that comes from this world. And it is this monumental shift in mindset, much like, remember, uh, when, he, when his mom and his brothers come and Jesus says, who are my mother and brother? It's those who do, the, do what God calls them to do. Here he's saying, my disciples are those who forego anything of this world to follow after me. Anything of this world has to be gotten rid of to follow after me. And it's this interesting thing, and it just popped into my head just right now. And you can look at my notes, which I don't have any of them, so you know that this is true. <laughs> when they're going into the promised land, what is God's call to the Israelites? Hello? What are they to do with everything that's in the promised land? Get rid of it. I mean, oh my word! Jesus is like, when you start following me, you have to get rid of everything in this world and have soul and complete allegiance to me. It's like, because discipleship is hard because we have all of these things that are calling for us and calling after us and calling for our attention and Jesus takes time out of all of this 
He sends the people out. Notice he sends them out in the same way. And it's this idea that those who are supposed to get it don't get it. And the people that think that they're going to be saved because of who they are, like Capernaum, Capernaum's like, we're, we're good because we're Capernaum. And he asks them this rhetorical question. You think that you're going to make it just because you live in Capernaum? Just because you're a Jew, you're like somehow going to make it? And the advancement of the kingdom of God is happening. It's going before him. And it's this cosmic, this cosmic vision that Jesus has of Satan falling from heaven. As the kingdom of God advances, Satan is falling from heaven. And it's just this cosmic experience. And what does Jesus do? He takes time. He rejoices in the Holy Spirit. And he talks to his father about the importance of what's happening. And then right away we get this guy who comes up and he says, how do I have eternal life? And he answers correctly. He knows the right answer. He has the cognitive knowledge of what it means to be a follower of Yahweh. And then we get the classic Good Samaritan story. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then we get the, the three individuals. We get the Samaritan at the end, right? We get the man who's nameless, faceless man who's on the roadside. And if you look at this idea from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's, it's an interesting place right in the heart of the, of the map. And the priest who's supposed to get it doesn't get it, right? And the Levite who's supposed to get it doesn't get it. Because what are they concerned about? They're concerned about cleanliness. They're concerned about the things of this world. They're concerned about whatever. They just, they don't get it. And the Samaritan, who again, we cannot drive home the point enough this is the last person who should get it. Like, remember we had, we've had all these people that aren't supposed to get it. The Samaritan shouldn't be the one who gets it. And he gets it. And what does he do? He shows mercy to this person who can't pay him back, who he doesn't know, who, who knows, doesn't deserve it. And Jesus says, that's what it looks like to be a follower of mine. Is to go and be with the people who don't deserve it. To love the people who the world says are unlovable. To take and stop our lives to see the people that are in the gutter and love them. Well, I'm busy. Oh, it's going to be this. Oh, it's going to be a challenge. It's, 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 it's. And Jesus says, if we want to be disciples, we have to do this. And again, we have this challenge of saying, so do I earn my salvation or is my salvation free? No, the salvation is free. The question is to be a disciple takes something on our part and it looks like this. And as we look at the Samaritan story you know, I was thinking about this today, and I was just curious around if you or I, if we chose to write out the Samaritan story, who would it be for us today? And so when you look at the spiritual practice and you're like, 
rewrite the story of the Good Samaritan in a modern context, you're like, that's kind of a weird spiritual practice. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> Except when we hear word, you know, we hear like the Samaritan, it doesn't mean anything to us. But when we think about the context and we think what would be the case if we were living in the 1950s in the deep south and there was a white man laying on the side of the road and two other white men walked past him and a black man came and picked up the white man and took him to a white hotel and said to the white hotel owner, hey, this is a guy that is my friend. You need to take care of him. Everyone would say, oh my goodness, that makes absolutely no sense because the black man doesn't even deserve to be in the white man's hotel. And why is the black man caring for the white man? But we don't live in 1950. We live in 2023. So who are those people for us? And as we joked about, somebody's going to say, it's a Packer fan. <laughs> yeah. What? Right, exactly. No, no. It's a Packer fan that picks up the Viking fan. And we're like, no, no way. What? How is that possible? You're like, well, the Vikings are in the gutter. And you're like, well, the Packers are right next to us. Okay, fair. Too soon? <laughs> and then from there, we go into this next story about Mary and Martha, which seems to be confusing, except what, what is the story about Martha and Mary about? What is she doing? No, no, what... What is Mary doing? Listening. And what does God say in the transfiguration? Listen to Jesus. Can we not see that? I mean, when we dissect our Bibles as if it's little gold mines, we miss it. God says in the transfiguration, Listen to Jesus. And then Luke gives us a story. And Martha, like she's probably like the youngest child, is like, no one's helping me. Or is it the other way around? I don't know. Yeah, it's not Martha Stewart. No, she's in prison. Uh, that's, she's what Jesus delivers her from prison. <laughs> I'm not discounting Martha's work. Luke is making a point. Martha believes the most important thing is to do what? Serve. To be the proper host, which as a Jew, a, a female Jew who owns a house, that's what she is, what is her number one priority? To serve, to be hospitable. That's the law, that's the world. What does Jesus say? The number one priority is what? To listen to me. What does God say in the transfiguration? Listen to my son. So yes, if we dissect this apart, Chuck, which is a great point, and we only look at the Martha and Mary story, we have this conversation around what's more important, to serve and be hospitable or to learn and be about Jesus. I totally agree. That is part of the conversation, but the much larger point is, are we listening to Jesus or are we concerned about what's happening in the world? What's happening in our world? And that is the larger question that's being asked by Luke and the stories that he's unveiling. Because certainly hospitality 
is like one of the most important things. That's why one of our reading group books was saved by faith and hospitality. Yes, extremely important. But it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to sit at Jesus' feet and to listen to his words and obey. Because Jesus says with the Good Samaritan and the lawyer, you know what to do. Are you going to do it? Mary seems to know that she needs to sit and listen to Jesus, and that's what she's doing. And Martha doesn't quite get it. And so the Mary and Martha story, yes, if we, if we ripped it out of its context and we just dissected it apart, we would miss what's really happening in the larger context of Luke's gospel. And it's about listening. And, and you, can, you may be scrunching your face because you disagree. Totally fine. Um, she shouldn't have offered her house. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Martha knows that providing hospitality is a very important thing. So she thinks she's doing the right thing. And Jesus is trying to communicate to the people that think they're doing the right thing, they don't get it. And so doing the, what is perceived as the right thing is not now the right, always the right thing. Doing a good thing isn't doing the best thing. And so for Martha, she's concerned about the temporal and Mary's concerned about the eternal. And so we had, because remember last week, we had another story about hospitality, right? And I know I'm over time and you're like, God, we're missing out on our discussion time. I'm sorry, apologize. Last week, we had another story, right? And Simon invites Jesus in, right? And Simon believes that he's offering Jesus the exact hospitality, right? And then in comes the person, that, the last person that you'd imagine. This woman of the city is what Luke says. And she provides him the correct hospitality. And where is that hospitality at? Yes, his feet! I mean, see how Luke does this? The proper place of someone to come to Jesus is at his feet, not at his head or at his mouth. It's to his feet. Why? Because he is the almighty God. And Luke gives us these examples of people that are so close to getting it. And how often is it the case that we are so close to getting Jesus and then we just miss it? It's like that smash and pickleball where you're like, I'm going to crush this right into the net. I've been saving, I've been restraining so many pickleball references. I couldn't help it because we're over time. I'm out, it's off the notes. Oh my goodness. All right. Great question though, Chuck. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, so as I said to the discussion leaders, because um, sometimes at MEA we have some smaller numbers, which you guys are amazing, and we don't really have smaller numbers, you can go to your discussion groups. I think everyone should have one.